Lord, to whom shall we go? We come from different places, carrying different concerns, wondering about what's next, worried about what's happening. And sometimes we wonder, where do we go? To whom shall we go? Lord, as we gather now, would you, would you meet us through your word? Yours are the words of eternal life. Would you meet us as we are and then lead us to the place you want us to be for the good of the world? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Megan's question, or at least her wondering about her own life and then asking about your life, have you ever been in that spot of feeling overwhelmed when the circumstances just don't seem like they're going to work out? Her, her question kind of stood out to me. If you're in that spot, uh, I have a word for you. Uh, if, you're, if you're not, I have an invitation for you. First, though, there's this great line by Leslie Newbegin, a missionary to India for about 40 years. Uh, he wrote in a book titled The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. He spent nearly 40 years in India, then returned to uh, England, his home country, set his sights also on North America and saw the same secularized and pluralized realities in England and North America as he did in India. And so he urges the church in those places, England and North America, to be the missionary agent of God in its context, not only sending people to other parts of the world, but also being missionaries here and now. And he insists regularly and beautifully, I think, that the prerequisite for all missionary engagement is a deep internalization of the story of God. Not just a pastor reciting a few verses on a Sunday morning, but the whole congregation, the whole people of God, immersing themselves in the story of God and so living from that place. We are inundated all the time by narratives that try to tell us what's true and right and good and beautiful. We're inundated all the time. This is the story of God. And we immerse ourselves in it until it becomes our story. Uh, here are the lines from the Gospel in a Pluralist Society. Authentic Christian thought and action begin not by attending to the aspirations of the people, not by answering the questions they're asking in their terms, not by offering solutions to the problems as the world sees them. It must begin and continue by attending to what God has done in the story of Israel and supremely the story of Jesus Christ. It must continue by indwelling that story so that it is our story, the way we understand the real story, and then, and this is the vital point, to attend with open hearts and minds to the real needs of people in the way that Jesus attended to them. That's a lot. So let me tighten it. Authentic Christian thought and action begins and continues by indwelling the story of God until it becomes our story. We immerse ourselves in the story until it becomes our story, until we live into its true, right, good, and beautiful for the world. 
So last week we started in Genesis 2, and today we continue and we'll launch through the Old Testament all the way until Advent. Yes, Advent. We're talking about Advent already. We're going to move through the entirety of the Old Testament in about three months so that we can immerse ourselves in the story until it becomes our story. Until it becomes our story. Until it defines for us what's true and right and good and beautiful. I want you to listen to this decisive moment in our story. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. When he looked up, he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he got up from the tent entrance and ran to meet them and bowed down to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread and, and refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. And they said, Do as you have said. So he hastened into the tent and said to Sarah, Make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it, and make cakes. And he ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, gave it to his servant who hastened to prepare it. And he took milk and curds and the calf and brought them to them, and he stood under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is your wife, Sarah? He said, there, in the tent. Then one of them said, in due season, I will return to you, and your wife, Sarah, will have a child. Now Sarah was listening in the tent entrance behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old advanced in years. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. And she laughed to herself, saying, after I'm old and my husband is old, shall I have such pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did she laugh and say, Shall I conceive a son in my old age? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? In due season, at the right time, I will return to you, and she will have a son. And Sarah denied, saying, No, I did not laugh. And the Lord said, Oh, yes, you did laugh. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had said. The Lord dealt with her as he had promised, and she conceived. And she bore a son in the time that the Lord had spoken. Abraham named him Isaac. And when he was eight days old, he circumcised him as the Lord had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. 
And Sarah said, the Lord has brought laughter to my house. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have ever said to Abraham, Sarah will nurse children? Yet in my old age, I have borne him a son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Genesis 18, 1 through 15, and then continuing Genesis 21, 1 through 7. This is a decisive moment in the unfolding story of God's salvation. If you're not a Christian or not really aware of the Bible, Abraham and Sarah are key figures in the unfolding story of God. Uh, Just to catch everybody up a little bit, God made the world. That's what Christians think. God made it, and God announced it's good, but something bad, sad, tragic happened. We call it the fall, and the world has been spiraling in chaos ever since, and we're still dizzy from its spiral. But God, unwilling to leave us dizzy, first showed up to Noah and told him to build an ark, a big boat, to preserve and protect the ones he loves. And then he showed up to Abram and to Sarai and promised them a child. And through that child, he'd give them a family. And with that family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And this is a decisive moment in that unfolding story of blessing the whole world. I have four questions. Uh, two about the story and two in the story. And then we'll come to the table. Uh, Here's the first question. Forgive me if this sounds a little crass. Who are these guys? It starts so promising. The Lord appeared to Abraham, and I'm thinking, all right, burning bush, fire, or maybe the whirlwind whisper like with Isaiah, or maybe just maybe we'll get a glimpse of God in the flesh pointing to one day when Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, would show up. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. Who are these guys? You remember the uh, movie Superman? Okay. (laughs) Somehow, Abraham seemed to be like anticipating them. It was like he was expecting them. He, He knew something about them. He gets up from the tent entrance and runs to meet them and bows with his face to the ground and says, my Lord, how would he know? How did he know? He seems to know. He either is hoping against hope that God would fulfill his promise from several years earlier sitting there at the tent entrance waiting, wondering, hey, maybe those are the guys. So we run. who are these guys? Is it, is it, could it be like a sort of echo of or signpost to the Trinitarian God? Three but one. Three men stood near him. Abraham says in the singular, my Lord, could that be? Or or maybe somehow they're these like prophetic figures. They know things about people. They see things in people. They're able to speak on behalf of God. Maybe, maybe they're a foreshadowing of Christ who would be God in the flesh. Who are these guys? One of the things I love about the Bible is when it wants to be clear, it is exceedingly clear. Like, for instance, the Bible makes no mistake, Jesus Christ is God. Like, you don't have to believe that, but the Bible insists on that. 
Jesus, you can't really say the Bible says something else. It's clear on that. The Bible's clear. Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins. He rose from the dead to overcome sin and death. He ascended into heaven where he rules and reigns until he comes again to make all things new. The Bible is clear on this. That's the story of the Bible. And then sometimes the Bible's not all that clear. Leaves us wondering, leaves us questioning, leaves us asking, who are these guys? Well, let me be clear. I have no idea. (laughs) But I do wonder, are we so fixated on seeing God in the flaming fire of the bush or or the whisper in the whirlwind that we miss God speaking in the other? We miss God, the divine in the other. Let us make humankind in our image, God says. So longing for ecstasy, so longing for the phenomenal that we miss God in the right in front of us speaking to us. Probably because of the building project I've been thinking a lot about when Kristen and I decided to move here in 2012. It was April. It was an early April evening. We were lying in bed together. We were talking. Does God want us to join the team at Pillar? God seems to be doing something there, but are we going to leave Whidbey Island to come back to Holland to a CRC congregation? And Kristen said something. I remember very clearly what it was. And, like, the bells went off. And we looked at each other saying, okay, we're going. Did, did, we, did, I, did we hear the voice of God? There was no fire. There were no whispering whirlwinds. It was just Kristen. <laughs> yeah. Are you looking for a fire? Are you looking for a whirlwind? Can you hear the voice of God in the other? When he looked up, he saw three men standing near him. That's the first question. Who are these guys? Here's the second question. Why all the bread? Abraham hastens into the tent, barks at Sarah, make ready quickly three measures of choice flour. Three measures. Anybody know what a measure is? Neither do I. So I looked it up. It's described as a gargantuan amount of bread. Why all the bread? The divine appetite? They've been traveling a long ways. Abraham wants to show off his wares. I got stuff. Why all the bread? The Bible makes a big deal about bread. Uh, just after the, the fall, there's the curse, which says, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread. And then God del- uh, delivers his people from slavery in Egypt and then provides for them bread in the wilderness. And then in the fullness of time, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And while they're threatening to take his life, he takes bread, blesses, breaks it, gives it to them. And after Pentecost, when the spirit comes down and people start talking other languages, they devote themselves to the breaking of bread. And Christian people for thousands of years have been eating bread on Sunday mornings. Why all the bread? God chooses to meet us in the bread. And the amount of bread is to promise God is the God of abundance. He meets us in abundance, with abundance, through abundance. We live in a world of scarcity. 
I gotta keep mine, I gotta get mine, I gotta make mine because if I don't have mine, I'll never find my way. What if God is the God of abundance? I'm not urging you to be irresponsible, I'm just inviting you into faith in the God of abundance, gargantuan amounts of abundance. That's why all the bread, every Sunday, you traipse down these aisles, make your way, or maybe to the back, and you eat bread. Uh, I was talking to someone earlier this week uh, who said to me, I, I look for the line with the person who's giving the biggest chunks of bread. <laughs> he was sort of apologizing. I'm like, I do the same thing. I get to serve myself. I take the whole loaf. Gargantuan amounts of bread. God is the God of abundance. Fair enough, circumstances are sometimes hard, but God provides. God shows up. God gives gargantuan amounts. Maybe, maybe we don't live in a world of scarcity. Is that possible? Maybe there's an abundant God. Uh, why all the bread? Third question, this is from Sarah herself. Shall I have pleasure? She says, aching. Shall I have pleasure, she says, with her heart broken? Shall I have pleasure? She just like speaks it out because she can't keep it in anymore. Shall I have pleasure? Um, they said to him, where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, there in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife, Sarah, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I've grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? Anybody know that question? Shall I have pleasure? On, the one, on one level, the narrative, the story, Genesis 18, sort of... Uh, lulls you into thinking the pleasure she's referring to is the opportunity to hold a child, to nurse a boy. Shall I have pleasure? And certainly that's the case. But there's also indication throughout the story that there's another pleasure she has in mind. You get the impression it's not good between Abraham and Sarah. Not just Genesis 18. There's plenty of other places in the Bible that suggest the same thing. It's not good between them. Abraham's at the entrance of the tent in the heat of the day. Sarah's in the back of the tent. She, Abraham goes in, barks out the orders. I don't know if I would do that, Abraham. Barks out the orders. Make quickly three measures of choice, flour, knead it, bake cakes. And then he brings milk, curds, and a calf. Where's the bread? Is it assumed? Well, well of course he brought the bread. Or did he just want to preoccupy her? So as not to be embarrassed by her. Shall I have pleasure, she says? Is it just about a child or is it about connection? Is it just about a boy or is it about relationship? And if you're willing to think about it that way with me, then you'll see some other things. Uh, they said to him, this is verse 9, Where is your wife Sarah? Which sounds an awful lot to me like the question God asked the first man and the first woman after the fall, where are you? They had hid themselves around clothing. They had divided themselves. And God says, where are you? And now they say to Abram, where is your wife? Is it a Genesis, a fall echo? 
Shall I have pleasure? The word pleasure is edna, which is a derivation of the word Eden. Shall I go back to Eden? Remember Genesis 2? And they were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Shall I have Eden? It's not just the promise of a child, though it is certainly that. It's also the... Abraham and Sarah were in a place that even if they could have a child, would they want to have a child? And she laughs, not like funny joke, but like scoff, sneer, snicker. There's no way. And the Lord says, why did Sarah laugh? God delivers on his promises. Abraham and Sarah are given Isaac. Isaac pointing to the son, the the real son, the son of righteousness, Jesus Christ, who takes on flesh, who becomes as we are in order to reconcile us to God and to one another. Connection, relationship, one of the fundamental longings of the human existence is to be known. And God in Jesus Christ is going to return us to Edna, to Eden, naked and not ashamed, community, known, vulnerable, transparent, belonging. I was running with my friend Ryan Tannis. Do you know Ryan? Uh, I call him Big Dog. He's awesome. You don't talk about the weather with Big Dog. Uh, You talk about life. Uh, so we were running, and he was telling me about a book he's been reading titled Lost Connection and a podcast that comes with it by a guy named Johan Hari. I don't know much about him myself. Uh, fairly controversial, I guess. He, he's suggesting in this book slash podcast the opposite of, diction is, of addiction is not sobriety but connection, and it made a lot of sense to me. Ryan went on to offer some statistics. Uh, just check this out. The average level of anxiety in U.S. teenagers, teenage girls, is equal to that of a psychiatric patient in the 1950s. He's suggesting connection. With the opioid epidemic and suicide rate spike, male life expectancy has gone down for the first time in decades. He's suggesting it's about connection. When asked the question, how many people in your life could you turn to, the answer researchers got for years was typically five or more. Now, zero. It's about connection. Shall I have pleasure? Can I be known? God in Jesus Christ enters into who we are and what we are in order to reconcile us to God and to one another. And until that great day when the full reconciliation is realized, we pursue reconciliation in the world. We pursue connection, relationship, known and being known now. Shall I have Edna? Here's the last question, and then we'll come to the table. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? The Bible 
it doesn't repeat that question just like that, but it basically suggests it over and over and over. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Friends, one day the lion and the lamb will lie down together. The kid will play over the whole of the adder, and there will be peace on earth. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? One day, swords will become plowshares, spears pruning hooks, guns will become garden instruments, axe handles will become baptismal fonts. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Death will become resurrection. Agony will become hope. Despair will become life. Morning will turn to dancing. Night will become day. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Uh, C.S. Lewis in an essay titled The Weight of Glory. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Uh, St. John Chrysostom on an Easter Sunday morning sermon, first and last alike receive your reward. Rich and poor rejoice together, sober and slothful. Celebrate the day. You that have kept the fast and you that have not, rejoice today for the table is richly laden. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Which I've already been saying, so let me nuance it a little bit. Abraham and Sarah are given a son. They're given the pleasure, they're reconciled to one another, and they have a boy, and it's not just to salve their sadness. The whole premise of the promise is the good of the world. Genesis 12, God shows up to Abram and says, I will bless you, and through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The whole premise of the promise is not just that you get to have, you get to keep, you get to hoard, but rather you get to give, love, serve, extend, offer. That's what you're here for. If you're here today and you know the overwhelming reality, the overwhelming circumstance, the deep pain, I want you to come to the table. God is the God of abundance. I want you to be nourished here. I want you to meet God here. If, on the other hand, you're here today and you, you can remember overwhelmed, but it's not here now. Now you can look around and see the blessings. You can see the gifts. I want you to ask yourself, why? Why? What's it for? The good of the world. That's, that's our story. That's the whole point. One day, all things will be made new, and we offer our lives for whatever part they'll play until that great day. If you can name the gifts and the blessings, why? 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 In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.